Well, good morning once again. I thank you, Pastor, for this opportunity to preach from the Word. This is a privilege that a missionary need not take for granted to have the pulpit. Uh, your pastor lives dangerously, though. He just told me, you're done when I'm done. <laughs> and uh, he hasn't been to our church in Benin. <laughs> but thankfully, I can preach in English this morning, so it should go uh, right on schedule. Um, it's so good to be with you this morning. And uh, again, thank you to Pastor for this opportunity. Thank you to many of you who have prayed for us over our first term and uh, uh, supported us with your prayers. And it's just been such a blessing to my wife and I to hear you tell us that you're praying for us. That's important to us to know that. And it encourages us as we, have, as we face difficulties. Oftentimes the faces of, of individuals who pray for us come to our minds and encourage us through that. In the times of joy, when it's easy to forget all of the people that are praying for you, uh, we need to also be reminded that you are standing with us in the ministry in Benin. And so it's a great privilege for us to be able to be with you today, uh, to have the opportunity throughout this past week to be in many of your homes and to <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> enjoy this time together. Well, here we are, a gathering of religious people. Now, if that's all we were, that would be pretty depressing, and uh, you, you might even be offended that I, sa offended that I said that. Uh, in reality, we know that we are religious people, but there's so much more to who we are than just religion, right? In fact, I've, I've, I even know some Christians that don't like to, to say that they're religious. Uh, by dictionary definition, we all are religious, so we cannot deny that. And yet, because of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we are so much more than just religious people. We walk with the Creator of the universe. Today we commune with Him together. Uh, every day we have opportunity to commune with Him. But today is special because we're all together doing that. And so I mentioned you know, that we are here a gathering of religious people because all around the world are religious people. But there's a great difference between those who do not know Christ and those who walk with Him daily, is there not? Well, it's interesting because uh, within our culture here in the United States of America, religion has paid a, played a very important part. In, in, in American life. But the Beninese can say that as well. Religion is an important part of their lives. For us, uh, uh, we can talk about God in this culture without too much difficulty. You can talk about higher beings. You can talk about spirits, especially this time of year. People want to talk about spirits and ghosts and things like that. So no big deal. There's open doors all over to talk about a higher being or God in general. It's the same in Benin. In fact, in Benin, it's, it's even more overt. In fact, their culture is so uh, um, saturated with religious thought that nearly every conversation is just going to be filled with religious phrases. Some go like this, iniquesabu, the Dindi say, to say, we thank God when something good happens to them. Now, they may not really understand or realize the, 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 the significance of that phrase, but they use that over and over and over. Uh, so they use their local language, and mo most of the phrases that the Dindi use are Arabic terms because they've just borrowed them from the Quran. So they'll say, Madala, which means glory to God. Now that's good theology, right? I agree with that. And they throw that in at the any time uh, anything good happens in their life, they say glory to God. And they have another one that they say, Inshallah, which means if God wills it. And that's the one I really don't like to hear in Benin. Because, well, the theology there is, is great, 
the best theology that I know. I mean, I believe in that. If God wills it, we will do this, we will do that. Uh, and yet, uh, when a fellow says that to me, it's usually in the context of the market when I'm asking if he can get me something or other by the end of the week. Because when you go to the market, you can't expect to get it that day. And he'll tell me, Inshallah, which means if I get around to it. And, uh, and so uh, I, I point my finger and I say, no, 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 that's not what I want to hear because I know you can do better than that. But no matter what, Religion is a part of their lives, and, and these words are very important. Even the French have had their influence. Siple uh, uh, Dieu, and Dieu merci, we thank God, and if it pleases God. So they say all these things, whether they mean them or not, or whether they have meaning to them. And, uh, of course, here in America, we're, we're not too much different, uh, but in our side of the world, it's become more in the, in the area of profane, profanity, where, where God's names are used. And that, of course, is disgraceful, but, uh, but we cannot deny the fact that our culture, just as their culture, has been influenced by religion. Now, in this culture, and in Benin, we have a great similarity. You can talk about God, you can talk about deity, you can talk about higher beings, but do not mention Jesus if you want to stay popular. Isn't that right, here in America? You can go just so far, but as soon as you start talking about Jesus, you're a freak. <laughs> they don't want to talk to you anymore. The, the conversation is stops, usually. Well, it's the same in Benin. I get into conversations with men, and, and I have, see an open door, and I begin to present Christ to them. And all, all of a sudden, you see the spine stiffen, and the eyes darken. They do not want to hear about Jesus. And yet, Jesus, to them, is, is, is one of the prophets. But they know that I believe something else about him, and they, they reject that. It's interesting, I, I've told the Beninese, I said, you know, there, there are Europeans and Americans that, that say that God doesn't exist. And uh, they look at me like, really? Only the greatest of fools could say that God doesn't exist. I mean, we have very little, but we can see that God exists. I mean, we are here because God exists. And so that's amazing to me that uh, anywhere on this green earth that we travel, people know that God exists. And only those who have made themselves to be God deny the existence of God. So religious vocabulary, religiosity, those are not uncommon to us. But when we speak of Jesus, we find it very difficult. We find it challenging. We find that that's where persecution begins. Well, there are a chorus of voices in the New Testament that challenge us to contend for our faith. Jude verse 3, contend for the faith that, faith that was once for all delivered or entrusted to the saints. Then, of course, the Apostle Paul, this verse that uh, you have an Awana program, so probably 95% of you have memorized Romans 1.16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. The Apostle Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. This morning we're going to look in, uh, in a passage in, in the book of Acts. We're going to be looking at, and don't get nervous here, chapter 13 and 14. <laughs> but we're not going to cover every verse, obviously. Um, but just so that we understand the context and what is going on in the life of the early church, we're going to be looking at both of these, these key chapters. Starting off in chapter 13 here. I'm not going to read all of chapter 13. Instead, I'm going to kind of give you a paraphrase of that. We see another religious group, the Jewish people. And in particular, we see Peter and John. Peter and John are religious men. These guys grew up 
probably in religious homes. They knew what they were supposed to do every day. And for them, the hour of prayer was a very customary thing. If they were near the temple, you better believe they're going up to the temple to pray. And even after faith in Christ, they didn't shun that practice. They continued to go up to the temple and pray. It was part of their practice, part of their life, part of their lifestyle. And so we see them here about 3 o'clock in the afternoon is uh, the ninth hour, heading up to the beautiful gate or the eastern gate of the temple to pray. Now, for us in this culture, that's a little bit different because we have hours of prayer, but that's Sunday morning, sometimes Sunday night, and sometimes a Wednesday prayer evening or whatever different services you might have. So usually you get three times a week where the body gets together. But these guys were used to at least three times a day, and they were very faithful, faithful to be a part of that. Well, moving to Benin was, was quite different for Tina and I. We were used to the Sunday thing and the Wednesday thing and, and then uh, live your faith in between. And, uh, but the Muslims don't do it that way. And they have a loudspeaker that's right outside my window, it seems like. It's actually about 100 meters up the road. But every morning at 5.30, I'm awake because I hear that loudspeaker <laughs> blaring in my window saying, it's time to pray. Come to the mosque. It's time to pray. And so we also pray. We pray to the, to the Creator God. We pray for those who do not know Him. And it's a reminder to us that we must be in prayer. Then again, they'll pray, pray before noon, and then the noon hour will be an hour of prayer. And then afternoon, and then at night, we'll hear that loudspeaker again blaring towards the station. And I know it's time to go turn the generator on. Uh, not so I don't have to hear it anymore, but just because it's getting dark. And that's when they, they begin to, to broadcast the hour of prayer. And so we, we kind of got accustomed to that. We had teams that would come out and they would be singing in Arabic after a week because they're hearing this over and over in their minds like, guys, you don't know what you're singing, so you better stop. But uh, it just becomes a part of the culture and, and a part of what you uh, become exposed to. For Peter and John, th this wasn't a stretch. They were used to this. This was a part of their daily lives, going up to pray. Well, there's another part of their daily lives that is foreign to us, and that is as they went up to pray, there was a lame man, lame from birth, sitting at the temple gate, requesting alms. In the Jewish culture, this was not uncommon. And, uh, and, and, and I believe that uh, from looking at this context and, and studying this man, he was well known. Everybody knew this guy. This was his post. This is where he begged for alms. Probably this guy actually did pretty well too. You know, you feel bad for the guy. He's lame. He's been lame from birth. So of course you have compassion for him. But uh, if it's anything like the, the alms giving in West Africa, some of these guys are doing pretty well. I remember going into the marketplace and uh, coming out and all I had left was large bills and, and so I didn't have anything to give uh, beggars. And we're really careful with that anyways. The government has said stop because it's creating problems. But a uh, fellow that was crippled, both legs, just basically from birth, he, he could not walk, sitting outside the gate or outside of the, the, the market. I knew him, not by name, but I've seen him every time that I go in. That's his customary spot. And I told him, I said, you know, I, I have nothing for you today. And uh, he said, well, that's no problem. I can make change for you. And he pulled out a big old bag full of money to make change for me. He actually had more money, I believe, in his bag than I had in my pocket coming out of the market. And so you can see that these guys are accustomed to this system. Now, it's not like that. It's not like that in every situation, obviously, but there are people that have the good spots, and they do well in that. I believe that this man probably did pretty well, and you'll see by his response and the fact that everybody knew the guy that uh, and, and, and religious people give, right? And if you're sitting at the gate, he probably did pretty well. Well, Peter doesn't have money for the guy. He doesn't have coins to offer him, but he reaches out his hand, and in Jesus' name, the man rises up and he walks. And he goes out through the temple, dancing and, and praising God for what has happened to him in his life. This is an exciting time, and obviously... It's drawing the attention of everybody. 
There's going to be a crowd at this time. This is this would be one of the more common times for people to be at at the temple to pray. And so they see this. They see this man who they know. They see him leaping and shouting and praising God, and they're thinking, "Whoa, how did that happen?" Peter looks at that and he sees it as an open door, an opportunity. And so he starts to preach. That's what Peter does. If you follow Peter in the first part of Acts, he has. A, a, we're going to look at two of his sermons just briefly, looking at them for the sake of uh, context. And uh, he's already preached one sermon in, in Acts chapter two. Now he's going to preach a second sermon. And so he draws the attention of this crowd and he takes advantage of the situation to preach. And he says, "Men of Israel," he's speaking to a very specific audience. This is the Jews. He said, "You killed Christ in ignorance." You see, he knew that they were guilty, just as you and I are guilty of the death of Christ. But he also knew that many of the people in that crowd were not the ones who had been shouting and asking for Jesus to crucify. They were complicit, but somewhat to the side. He says, you killed Christ, and he kind of tempers this message a little bit for Peter. Still not overly politically correct, but he says, in ignorance, you did that. He says, but the prophets foretold of the sufferings of Christ as if to tell them, but you know what? This was going to happen. The prophets said that he would die. The prophets said that that's why he, he came was to die. And he tells them, repent, verses 19 and 20, if you're looking for this in the passage, repent that your sins might be blotted out. And he continues, he says, repent. And I'm going to paraphrase this even further than most of your Bibles because it takes a bit of explanation. Repent so that God might send Christ back. They're looking for times of refreshing, some of your Bibles say. Peter wanted God, he wanted Christ to return, and he was ready right then. I think the, the, the disciples, the apostles, they anticipated Christ was coming back soon. We ought also to live in such a way. Peter is saying, repent so God will send Christ back to us. He says, uh, Jesus was the prophet that Moses spoke of. They're back in Deuteronomy. He's speaking to a religious crowd. They know Moses. They love Moses. He was the one that Moses spoke of. Not only that, all of the prophets from Samuel forward spoke of Jesus. Of course, some of the folks aren't too excited to hear Peter saying this, but they cannot deny the, the, the reality of it. Well, at this point, this brings us up to chapter 4, and you can see that the men have created a stir. They've created a stir among the temple, uh, and we're going to look at what happened as a result of that. Chapter 4 of Acts, I said 13 and 14, I meant 3 and 4, sorry. You're in the wrong place, and so you were lost. I, I apologize for that. Chapter 4, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. There are two problems here. You have the religious establishment now coming forward, and they're upset. They're upset because, number one, they're proclaiming in Jesus' name, in the temple, the audacity. And number two, they're preaching the resurrection from the dead. And one group in particular, the Sadducees, would have none of that. They didn't believe in the supernatural. They did not believe in the resurrection from the dead. And so they're very upset. And so we see in, in verse 3, they arrested them. And they put them in custody until the next day because it was already evening and they didn't deal with those things after the evening hour. But the damage had been done. Verse 4. Many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of men came to be about 5,000. 
Now, this is incredible. Okay, the, the start of the book of Acts, you have 120 believers meeting in an upper room. Small group meeting in an upper room. This is how many faithful you have. The Holy Spirit comes upon, upon them just as promised. Peter goes out and preaches in, in, in uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Those who received his word were baptized. Those who were added that day were about 3,000 souls. We're talking about something supernatural, obviously, here. From 120 faithful to 3,000 who are calling upon Christ as their Savior. Now, here we are, just two chapters later, Peter preaches once again, and we have 5,000 men. Now, I don't know why the author, uh, Luke, didn't include the women. Uh, maybe there's just too many to really count. But you can imagine if there's 5,000 men, there's a good chance there's an equal number of women, maybe even more, uh, as women seem to be more spiritually sensitive oftentimes. And then they're children often. So it's not uncommon to think that, impossible to think that there may have been 12,000, 15,000 people who have come to Christ in a very short span of time. Why? He says, the word was preached, and many who heard it believed. On the next day, verse 5, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Now, if you're in the habit of underlining things in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline the word family there because it's something that I've often skipped over and that probably, if you're like me, you just skip over that. But there's something here that is important to understand in the context, and that is that the opposition is a family affair. Caiaphas is the son-in-law of Annas. And John, or Jonathan, is the son of Caiaphas. So these guys are pretty interrelated, obviously. And they're looking out right now and they're seeing Peter and John stirring up the people in Jesus' name and they're seeing that they have a problem on their hands. And so these men attack or, or come out against them. When they had them in their midst, they inquired and asked this question in verse 7, by what power or by what name did you do this? Now, you know by reading the first seven verses that they already know the answer to the question. So the only thing I can imagine is that they're giving them an opportunity to recant, to step back and, and, and deny what they've done, and hopefully we can just wash our hands of this and it'll go away. But in verse 8, we see that that's not going to be the case. Because once again, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now in all of Peter's sermons, you'll notice it. He, he just pulls right out of the Old Testament and just quotes directly. This right here is a quote from Psalm 18, 118.22. Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you. You. You who killed Christ, not in ignorance, but now the religious leaders who did it deliberately. You see, he's, he's got a different tone with this in this, his third sermon. And then in verse 12, he really turns the screws. He says, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter is speaking of the exclusivity of Christ. Only Christ. Christ alone. 
And that's the last thing these guys wanted to hear. Some of them might open up to say, okay, Christ and. But not Christ alone. I believe this verse right here is one of the key verses in Scripture. Acts 4.12 There is salvation in no one else, speaking obviously of Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You see, Peter didn't pull any punches on this one. He comes to them. He says, you crucified him. But God raised him from the dead. Now, verse 13, they see the boldness of Peter and John, and they're, they're surprised because these are uneducated Galilean men, typically not known for their public speaking abilities. And so they were astonished. And they recognized at this point that not only did they know Jesus, not only were they proclaiming in Jesus' name, but these were the guys that actually walked with him. These were some who were close to Jesus. Now, they thought, erroneously, that when they nailed Christ to the cross, the problem was over. But they were wrong. Because their problems had just begun. You see, when they nailed Christ to the cross, He died. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended to the Father, and now we are His hands and we are His feet. Christ was multiplied over and over and over again. And these are the guys, these are the first spectators to see that. Their problems were just beginning. Verse 14, seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them, it is evident, to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them, verse 18, charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And I love the response of Peter and John. Peter and John answered them. I've got to stop just for a minute because as I look at this verse, I cannot... I, I know of these men that they were godly men, they were respectful men, and so I don't know if I could have handled it the way they did. But I've got to say, if I were to say what these guys are about to say, there would have been a lot of sarcasm added to it. Listen to this. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, speaking to the religious people, you be the judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Wow. Now, I, I do believe that Peter and John were very respectful in this because we see examples, even Paul later on uh, in his times of persecution, very respectful to the religious hierarchy of that day. I believe desiring that they would come to faith as well. But I cannot help believe, uh, but can I, I cannot help but believe that in their hearts they must be thinking, wow, you're telling us not to say what God has said to say? At this point, they, they threaten them further and, and they let them go because they could find no way to punish them. They had no means, no, no way to justify punishing this men because all the people are there praising God with them. They've seen what God has done. They're rejoicing in that. And so these men have nothing that they can do in response. Now, interestingly enough, Peter and John do not quit preaching. We're not going to go clear into chapter 5 and 6, but uh, if we were to continue, you would see that Peter goes and continues to preach. And he is confronted once again by these, by these men. 
The religious leaders, captain of the temple, Sadducees, and the priests come upon them. This time, they're persecuted to a greater degree. They're actually physically uh, beaten for that, for it. But their response, and, and if you just flip over there real quick, chapter 5, 28 and, and 29, we must obey God and not men. That speaks loudly to my heart. Well, this morning I, I, I come to you with a challenge. It comes, first of all, in the form of a question. And that is, are you ashamed of the gospel? Why do I ask it that way? Because, to be honest, sometimes I think I am. Now, sitting here Sunday morning, we're all together. We're the believers gathered together, and there is no shame in here, obviously. I'm talking about Monday through Friday. When a door opens and I have opportunity to present Christ, and I just clam up. Is anybody in here like me? I think some of you are. And I regret it so often. Opportunities missed. And I know that I've acted as if I'm ashamed of that which brings me the greatest joy and honor. So the challenge, I guess, is that we stand up and be counted as, as fully devoted followers of Christ. That we look for those open doors. That we present our faith to others. And, and it's not with the assumption that it's easy, ever. Because it's never easy. It's not easy in America. It's not easy in West Africa. It's not easy on any mission field that I've ever heard of. It's true that there are certain fields where more come to Christ, more respond. We thank the Lord for that. Obviously, 5,000 responded on that day, so it happens. In many cases, it's not that way. But as we think about this together, there are three points that I, that I want us to consider together. This is where I start to preach, okay? that be all right? <laughs> I'll go quickly from here. Three points that I want us to consider. And they come from Peter's sermon. First of all, who is this Jesus that Peter is presenting? Because Peter's sermon is all about the gospel. Through and throughout, he presents Christ to different audiences for sure. Each time he's got a different audience and he does it in a little bit different way. That ought to be instructive to us. But he presents the same Christ in the same message. It's interesting to me because I, I remember back in Matthew 16, 13 through 16, when Jesus said to his disciples, who do men say that I am? At this point, these, these guys are all pretty green. But they give a decent response. It's not bad. We shouldn't criticize them too much. Uh, Jesus says, who do men say that I am? Uh, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, well, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Well, hey, they're getting there. Jesus was a prophet. After all, was he not? He was the prophet foretold by Moses and all the prophets after him. So they're on the right track, but nobody's quite yet ready to commit to the right answer. And the fact of the matter is, the Holy Spirit had not revealed it to them. But Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The other guys are like, wow. And Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, Peter, or Simon Barjona, in the context there. Amazing thing. You see Peter uh, recognizing who Christ is at that point. But then later we see Peter as Peter is, weak and frail. And he runs from persecution as Christ goes to his death upon the cross. And now we see another Peter preaching this message. So he presents Christ in this message. He holds nothing back. And one of the first things he says of him is he says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob glorified Jesus. Now what's so significant about that? Besides that it's a great phrase. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob glorified Jesus. 
Remember who he's talking to. He's talking to Jews who love Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, to be honest, these guys pretty much worship them. They would not necessarily admit that, but they're always referring to the fact that, well, our fathers, the patriarchs, these are the men who, who we descend from. And Peter says, let's not forget, God did not glorify these men. He used them. They were tools chosen by God. God glorified Jesus Christ. He set him above all of these others. Well, that's going to become as a, a bit of a controversy to, to his audience. He continues, he says, Jesus is the author of life. When they ask him, how is it that, that this man is healed? The man in chapter 3, how is it that he is healed? Peter reminds him, Jesus is the author of life. Faith in Jesus, chapter 3 and verse 16, Peter is telling them, faith in Jesus brings life. It brings health. Isn't that true? Do we not know that? Now, we do not preach a health and wealth gospel, saying that if you come to Christ, all of your desires in this life will be fulfilled. That is not true. That is devastating, a devastating message, especially to preach in Africa. But we do preach that faith in Christ brings life, brings life and brings health. And we can back that up in our own lives, our own testimonies. My testimony would tell you that. We can look at our own nation and how God has blessed this nation. Now, today, we're saddened by what we see happening in our nation, but we cannot but help look at the history of this nation. And because founding fathers built a nation on the principles of God's word, God blessed America. You know what's amazing to me in going to Benin? When we, last time we reported here, Benin was the sixth poorest nation in the world. Today it's 39 on that index, and it's not been that long since we were here. What happened? Well, they elected for the first time in history a Christian president. And this man, he was one to Christ in an SIM church. And uh, in fact, they asked him at one point, why did you not campaign as a Christian? Why was that not a big part? He said, well, to be honest, I haven't lived my faith like I ought to, and I was ashamed. Oh, wow. But he's governing with Christian principles. And uh, now the man's not perfect, and you can just read the news and find that out. But uh, there has been a, there's been a drastic change in the way Benin has been governed. And as a result of that, they're starting to see development. I believe that God is blessing uh, this president and the people of Benin. Faith in Christ brings life, brings health, cannot be denied. He continues in, in, in explaining Christ. He says, he was killed unjustly. You put him on the cross. Whether those who did it in ignorance or those who did it deliberately, they were all guilty. And Christ was sinless, perfect, killed unjustly. But he rose from the dead. And that's the centerpiece of, of Peter's sermons. Christ's resurrection from the dead and victory over the grave. Only one man, God-man, could do that, Jesus Christ. And not only that, but he's returning triumphantly. He is coming back to take his people to be with him. So this is a great message of hope. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ presented to these people. If you're hearing this for the first time this morning, I hope it's as exciting to you as it was to me when I first heard it. Christ came to earth, lived as a man, walked the earth just like me, was tempted in every way that you and I are tempted, and yet without sin. He was condemned to death, put on the cross, buried after he died, but he rose again in victory from the grave, and now he sits with the Father in heaven. And one day we're going to be with him, those who have committed their lives to him. Have you committed your life to him? That's the message that Peter is preaching to them. In Jesus' name. So that's who Jesus is. The second point is, how should I respond to him? Now, obviously I'm preaching to the choir here because most of you, I heard you singing. Boy, that was great this morning, by the way. I enjoyed worshiping with you here. How should we respond to him? 
First of all, those uh, who, who have trusted in Christ, we know this, we respond in faith. Eighty times in the book of Acts, more than any other New Testament book, the, the term believe, the Greek term for believe, is used over and over and over. Most commonly we remember believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, the Philippian jailer. But not only that, Peter says, with a repentant heart. Chapter 3 and, and verse 19. How can we believe in Christ if we have not repented of our own, of our own sin and depravity? So we must respond to Him in faith. To this message as it is presented to, that, to us. We must believe in Christ. Who He is, what He's done, and what He is capable of doing in my personal life. With a repentant heart. Moving to the third point. What should I do having responded to Him? You see, most of you today have responded to Him. I've seen most of you throughout the week. From Awana and forward. So I, I've come to know you. And many of you have, have, have trusted in Christ as your personal Savior. You're walking with Him. You're here today because of that. But having responded to Him, having grown in faith, what should we do? And this again, this is not rocket science, folks. I'm not bringing something new out for you. We obediently share our faith. Obediently we share our faith. But it's not easy, is it? It's not easy to do that. Peter and John, I'm reminded once again of their words, we must obey God and not men. Paul, I am compelled to share the gospel. They could not help but speak of what Christ had done to them. And so we must respond and we must testify boldly. We must testify boldly. Now, lest uh, I lead you astray here and, and make you think that, oh, it must be easy for missionaries or it's easy for some people. It's not. It wasn't easy for Peter. Turn in your, in your Bibles to uh, chapter 4 still. Same, same passage, just a little bit further on down. And verse 29. And in that passage we see Peter say, Grant boldness that we might speak of Jesus. You see there in uh, verse... Let's see, where am I? Let me make sure I'm in the right spot here. Verse 23. After they're released, they went to their own companions, reported all that the chiefs, chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard that, they lifted their voices to God in one accord and they prayed. We see here they're praying. Verse 29, Lord, take note of their threats. Grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. Or grant boldness that we might speak of Jesus. Peter knew how weak Peter was. I know how weak I am. You know how weak you are. We come to a point where we must realize we don't do this on our own. Acts 1.8 the Holy Spirit is promised. And then throughout this first part of Acts, we see the Holy Spirit coming again and again. Peter filled with the Holy Spirit and he preaches the gospel. And if it were not for God and His ministry in the lives of men, that, that gospel would not go forward because we are timid people. So we rely on that. We come together. As Peter went to the church, he brought them together in chapter 4. They prayed together. They asked God, grant boldness. Because after chapter 4 is chapter 5. And they had to go back out and they had to preach again and they knew that they were going to be confronted. Is that not true in all of our lives? You who have, who have gone out, 
You've shared your faith. You've been bold. And maybe you've been burnt. Maybe you've been rejected. Probably you have been rejected. The Bible reveals to us that those who are faithful to present their faith will be persecuted. This morning I want, I want to clarify that this is not a call to be obnoxious Christians. I know some of those guys. You know, they, they carry the biggest Bible that they can find. And, and it, it seems more like they want to hit you over the head with it than actually share, you, share it with you. I went to Washington State University and there was a guy who came to campus every year and he literally carried the cross of Christ. The, the best one that he could find to represent it. He would walk across campus with that thing on his back, screaming and shouting and telling us all, telling everybody that they were going to hell because of their sins. He was preaching a right message, but with what appeared to be hateful intentions. And the unbeliever looks at that and they say, how can you preach a message of love with a voice of hate? So that's not what I'm, I'm, I'm presenting to you here today. What I'm asking, what I'm saying is that we be prepared with our neighbor, with our friend, with our coworker to enter into relationship with them, to be a part of their lives so that when that door opens and we have opportunity to open the door of faith to them, that we present Christ faithfully. As we return home from West Africa, is coming in, uh, it's just incredible going into the marts, whether it's Fred Meyer, Walmart, whatever it is, it's just, it's fun. And uh, our family went in and we were in Fred Meyer at the time and uh, we were not on African time because we had somewhere to be in the afternoon and so we had to hurry. And so we were trying to figure out how we were going to eat lunch and all that. So we saw in Fred Meyer, there's a little nook over there. You can go order your fried food and sit down and eat it. Great stuff. And uh, so we went over, ordered, and, and I held Ethan's hand and my wife's hand, and we prayed for our meal. And uh, that was one thing we were excited about in coming back to America. It's something you can do, and it's not that big a deal. You don't need to make a big deal about it or make a spectacle. You don't stand up in front of everybody. But uh, we prayed for our meal, and, and we're enjoying our meal. And a lady came up. She said, that was wonderful. Of course, at that point, we'd been eating our meal. I didn't know if she was talking about a burrito or what. But uh, she was referring to the fact that she saw our family in prayer in public. And I thought, wow, what an opportunity. Just those small things that we can be doing. Sitting on a park bench, bench reading our Bibles. Whatever it is, whatever opportunities we have. I ask you, what are we afraid of today? Are we afraid that we're going to lose some of our friends along the way? Maybe some of us have business contacts and we're afraid, you know, that Bible verse on our, on our business card might offend somebody. Here in America, I don't believe we're afraid of losing our lives. What are we afraid of? Some of you know who Rebecca St. James is. In one of her songs, she says, If you don't have a cause that's worth dying for, you very likely don't have anything worth living for. Wow. Have you thought about that? John Maxwell puts it in a little bit more positive light. Having a cause worth dying for is the greatest reason to live. We have the greatest reason to live. We have the greatest message of hope. So when we walk out of this church today, let's not forget that. Let's not act timid. Let's not act ashamed. Let us be bold. Let us be, let us be wise. But let us be bold in sharing our faith. And then, of course, at a missionary conference, I, I have to leave with a missionary quote. Jim Elliott, many of you, you, you know of him and his ministry to the Aka Indians in Ecuador, said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I believe Peter would have echoed that same sentiment, preaching to a crowd that desperately hated him and did not want to hear it. So let's be bold. Let's go out. Let's proclaim the message of the gospel to a lost and dying world and let's see what God can do because we know that He is able. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you so much for this passage and for your word, for the opportunity to, to, to step aside today and be together, to worship you, to learn of you. Help us, Lord, to grow. Transform our hearts to, become, to be conformed into your likeness. And help us, Lord, to walk out of these doors into the world with a message of hope to lost and dying people. In Jesus' name, amen.